Well, it is a great joy to be back with you. As I said to you last time I was here, I felt like we just stepped into another family that we've known for a long time. So many of you have been dear to our hearts, and we've heard about you through members of the church that have been longtime friends, and it's a privilege to be with you and in this pulpit today. If you have your copy of God's Word, please open it to the book of Job, Job chapter 23. We're going to be looking at verses 8 down through verse 14. The Word of God says this, Job, 8, Job 23, verses 8 and following. says, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. And ba- backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. And when he turns on the right, I cannot see him. But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot is held fast, fast to his path. I've kept his way and not turned aside. I've not departed from the command of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is unique and who can turn him and what his soul desires that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me and many such decrees are with him. Think for just a moment about the worst day of your life. Depending upon your age, that means a whole lot of different things. Having children, there are occasions where they will say to me, this is the worst day. And I think, you're six. That's awesome. I want that worst day every day. And as, of course, you know, you go through the seasons of life and the worst day means different things the more you experience. And some in this room are here with great scar tissue And maybe it's not even scar tissue yet. Maybe it's just an open wound from the very real tragedies and trials through which you are going. We often think of the worst day sometimes as the day you miss the parking space or you're too late with a bill and now there's a penalty. Or the difficulty sometimes ranging up to losing a job or the ultimate tragedy of losing a loved one. The heartbreak of life and there's a wide range of emotions that goes with it. But there's a scenario that takes place in the book of Job that goes beyond what most of us will ever experience, even in some small part. There's a conversation that takes place where Satan actually approaches God and makes a request, asking for someone to test. In fact, if you glance back to Job chapter 1, Satan approaches God and says, no one ultimately trusts you, and says, If you give me somebody, I'll prove that they don't trust you. And of course, the Lord says in Job chapter 1, verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Satan says to the Lord, verse 9, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not set a hedge about him and his house and on every side, and you've blessed him and his possessions and have increased his land. Job is here taunting God, saying, God, he only trusts you because you've blessed him. And so God gives permission for the sifting of Job's life to take place. The first round sets in, in the first part of chapter 1, where his crops are destroyed, his animals are taken away, and all of his children are killed. In a very short time span. 
messengers are coming back to Job with this devastating news that his children are dead, his crops are destroyed, and his cattle is gone. And Job chapter 1, verse 20 says, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And out of his agony, he cries out and says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, verse 22 says, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. I haven't had any of that happen. And yet the reaction to my heart is to some way incriminate God, saying, God, you did this. God, it's your fault. And yet Job here endures these three Herculean trials, this bombardment of assault against him with no explanation why and no rationale, no understanding of the scope of what's about to happen. His response is, I came with nothing. I'll leave with nothing. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away, bless his name. And God's commentary of Job, the omniscient God who sees the heart, says he did not sin. That's not Job's commentary about himself or his friend's observation of his outward performance. That's the commentary of the creator looking at the heart of Job saying he didn't sin. Well, Satan's not done. There's another round that's about to take place. Verse 2 of chapter 2, the Lord says to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan says, from roaming about the earth, walking on it. And we're not done. And the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to cause him ruin without cause. Satan's back. And Satan's saying, yeah, you just took away external things. You took away possessions and property. You took away children. But you didn't get his heart. You didn't get his body. Let's go after that. And God, in his mysterious providence, and gives permission, verse 6, says, Behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. And Satan walks out of the presence of God and now attacks Job personally. Goes after his body and he's covered, as verse 7 says, in sores from head to foot. There's nothing on him that's a safe place. There's no refuge now. The attack that was outside that weighing against his heart and his emotions is now on himself. And so you compound the agony of what's going on. And then verse 9 of chapter 2, the whole thing just implodes with his wife, the helper. The one who's supposed to be alongside him to bring a word of grace and encouragement and comfort. Her voice that means so much in his mind. She looks at him and says, curse God and die. There's nowhere to go. Your children are dead. Your property has gone. Your animals are gone. Your body is deteriorating. And the one person whose voice and shoulder you lean on in time of need is now looking at you and saying, just die. Would you just die? He looks at her. Verse 10 says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And again, God's commentary on Job. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. 
What do you think? Okay, maybe we hit the bottom of the bucket here. Maybe we got to the bottom of the, the full total of all that's going to happen to Job. And Of course, the story goes on and it doesn't happen. Along come his three friends who wonderfully show up and just remain silent. Out of love and compassion, interest in helping him, they're there, they're present. And just their presence can be a buttress and a strength to help support him. But they see his agony. And just like any predictable man, they want to search out and find the cause. They want to know why. They see the smoke and they want to put out the fire. And so they show up and what they actually do is compound the problem. They don't intend to do that, but that's exactly what they do. Instead of being compassion, prayer, and comfort, they bring accusations, conflict, and contention. And the rest of the book explains this back and forth debate. And so not only is he dealing with the grief of all that's happened externally, the agony of all that's going on in his body, his marriage is at this point broken because of the position his wife has taken against him. The difficulties are external, they're internal, they're conversational. They're all around him. He can't escape. There's no ICU with HIPAA laws that prevent certain people from knowing certain information. There's no guard that keeps the people away from him. There's no clandestine resort to go to, no private shelter, no Ambien or sedative drug that he can take to just pass out. There's no Netflix for distraction. There's not even earbuds to insulate yourself from someone right next to you. At this point, there's no one to turn to for comfort because his closest friends and his wife have turned against him. So where do you turn? What do you do? How do you handle the trauma of life, the difficulty of life? How do you handle the tragedies of life? Well, in the middle of the book, in Job chapter 23, we find something that's going on in Job's mind. We find a truth, a section here that explains the heart of a godly person that has to be in place long before the tragedy ever sets in. You don't get to this point in the middle of it. You get to this point now before the trial arises so that it's there when the trial shows up. What we learn in this section is how to deal with the tragedies of life long before they ever present themselves. There's a perception that we see first. And this is Job's perception, his vantage point of what's going on. And that's what we see in Job chapter 23, verse 8 and 9. He says, behold, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, I cannot perceive him. He acts on the left, I cannot behold him. And turns on the right, I cannot see him. Ever notice that when a tragedy starts, we start asking, why? We ask that question. We say, why? Why did this happen? Why would God allow that to take place? Or we say, what is he trying to teach you? That's human nature. We're cause and effect people. We live in if-then equations. If this, then that. We've been trained like that since our days of early math. An event happens and we want to know what provoked it. We start searching for the first cause. We want to know the why behind the what. We dig through every experience, hoping to discover some moral, some punchline that makes it all okay. Some sentence that helps us better rationalize why these things are unfolding. As if every life, everything in life, every trial in life was like a fortune cookie where you got to fight through that bomb-proof plastic wrapper and then use a hammer to smash the cookie to get that piece of paper that was so worth the hunt. And you read it, you're like, what does that mean? And you throw it down, you walk away. Sometimes we approach trials like that, where I've got to slug through all of this to find that little moral. Because there's got to be a why. 
And we look for some kind of peace or a little bit of relief when we figure out the why. And Job does go down that path. In fact, about 20 times in the book of Job, he asks the question, why? Chapter 3, verse 11, he says, why did I not die at birth and come forth from the womb and expire? Why wasn't I stillborn? Job 3.20, why is life given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul? God, why? Why do I have to live through this? Job 7.20, why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Lord, you're the archer and I'm the target. Your arrows are hitting me. Why am I the target? Job 7.21, why then do you not pardon my transgressions and take away my iniquity? Like, God, if, if I did something wrong, why don't you just forgive me? Why do you got to take everything? Job 10.2, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Job's just saying, God, just tell me the answer. Why? Job 10.18, why then have you sought me out of the womb? Why have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I have just died and no one had seen me. 13.24, why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? God, I'm asking you a question. You're not, you're not answering me. There's no response. Why do you just leave me like this? Job 19.22, why do you persecute me as God does? Are you not satisfied with my flesh? Looking at those you're talking to him? Why, why are you against me? And Job 21, verse 7, why do the wicked still live and continue on and also become powerful? God, why do those who actually hate you have a peaceful life and I love you and you're taking everything from me? All the questions milling about in Job's mind and it's coming out and it's in our hearts too when things happen. But something happens when we get to Job chapter 23. From that point forward, Job no longer asks the why question. He stops looking at God and says, why? He doesn't question God anymore about his purpose. The issue is not resolved for Job, but he stops throwing that question at God. And a powerful lesson starts to emerge when you realize that point. And here it is. Job simply says, behold, I go forward. He's not there. And backward, I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. And when he turns on the right, I cannot see him. Job is saying, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know his purposes. I don't know his plan. I don't know his thinking. I don't know his reasoning. I don't know the outcome. I don't know the duration. I don't know how long this will go. I don't know how deep it will go. I don't know what else he's going to take. I don't know how it's going to end. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. It's Job saying, God doesn't owe me an explanation. God does not have to tell me why. Could it be that in the trials of life that go through your life, God's not necessarily trying to teach you something? Could it be that maybe you're not the punchline? Maybe the moral of the story is not some lesson that you have to learn? Maybe the moral of the story, maybe the punchline, maybe the big point is God is showing Satan how irrelevant Satan is? Did you ever think of that? I mean, do you think it would have helped Job out if he knew why? If God were to say, hey, by the way, I'm doing all this to you to prove a point to Satan that he's irrelevant. <laughs> do you think Job would have said, oh, I get it now. Thank you. Thanks for the explanation. Would that have left Job in some measure of comfort knowing that, oh, you chose me 
to completely destroy internally, externally, take my kids, my property, my crops, turn my wife against. Oh, thank you. That makes total sense now. No. The answer is that the answer that Job requests in the why question doesn't solve the problem. Knowledge is not the solution here. More information, insight is not what he needs. Job has to get to the point where he says, I can't perceive him. I can't behold him. I can't see him. And that's okay. Three different words that Job uses there. He says, I can't perceive him. That's a word for understanding. I can't plumb the depths of his mind. I can't discover the cause, the prompt, the rationale. I can't get into that world of what God is thinking internally that provokes these actions. He says, I can't behold him. That's a word for observing something. He says, there's nothing to watch. There's no alternative viewing angle. I can't see this from a different perspective. There's, there's no other place from which I can glimpse this. He says, I cannot see him. That's a word for spying something out or to investigate, to look with intimate and intricate detail. He says, I can't do any of that. I can't perceive, behold, or see. My eyes won't solve this. My knowledge won't resolve it. And no research can make it uh, understandable. But Job's not panicked here. There's actually comfort in this statement. There's comfort in God not telling us everything. There's comfort in God saying, here's the factors, here's the scenario, and your only answer is to trust me. You don't need to know everything. There's such a joy in knowing that we can entrust our hearts and our lives to an omniscient, omnipotent God who doesn't owe us an answer. God shields us, shields us from what he's doing so that we can simply remain in a place of trusting him. It's what Job said back in chapter 13, verse 15, where he says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he takes everything, my hope will stay in him. There's comfort in knowing that God is not telling me everything. But you know, God also tells us that he's not going to tell us everything. Mark down Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9. Isaiah says, quoting God, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That is good news, my friends. That is good news. That we do not know his plans. We do not know his thoughts. We do not know the pathway that he's going to lead us down. All we know is that he is in charge. He is sovereign. He is in control of every detail. And he does not, know, does not owe us an answer. But the perception that Job has then gives way in verse 10 to the plan. What's the plan in the actual moment? What do you do in the actual moment of the tragedy, of the trial? He says this, verse 10. But he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. He knows the way I take. Stop for a minute. He says, he knows. God knows. He does not find out. He does not discover. He does not learn about it. He does not assume or guess. He already knows the path that I take, the way that I take. Write down Psalm 139 and mark that chapter in your Bible to come back and look at. Psalm 139, David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. It's David saying, you know everything about me long before it's ever happened. 
You scrutinize me. You studied me. You've intimately looked at my heart, my mind, my thoughts. You know it all. He says, you understand my thought from afar. That means before the thoughts on my mind, you already know it. Before it's even begun to enter into my mind, you know what I'm going to be thinking in the future. Psalm 139 continues and says, You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You know every statement that's about to come out of me. Verse 7 of Psalm 139, David writes, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? It's a rhetorical question. He's saying, where could I go? I can't escape you, even if I wanted to. If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the grave, behold, you're there. He's using vertical dimensions, saying, if I go to the highest point of humanity, if I go to the lowest point of humanity, I'm going to get there, and I'm still looking at you, God. He says, verse 9, if I take the wings of the dawn... That's a great phrase. You know what that means? Have you ever seen the mountain, uh, mountain range where the sun comes up behind one mountain and in a split second, a ray of light shoots across the valley and hits the other mountain? We love that. Growing up in Southern California, you could see that every morning where the sun would crest over one mountain and in an instant, the light would break over and hit the other mountain directly. That's the wings of the dawn. He's saying if I could harness light speed, if I could get on that sunbeam when it crests one mountain and ride it all the way to the other end of the universe... I'd get there and you'd be there. If I can move at light speed, if I can take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. You know what's comforting about all those words from David in Psalm 139? Is he has a clear conscience that's unafraid of God's inspection. He has a clear conscience. He's not living in any hidden sin that's afraid of God's discovery. And the same is true with Job. Job says, God, you know my heart. There's nothing in me that is the cause of what's going on around me. This is not like Achan who had a lot to hide in fear of his life and eventually paid with his life. This is Job. This is David. Who at this point is saying, there's nothing in me that should be hidden from your sight. And that's great news. Because it's God who does the testing. It's God who does the exposing. It's God who knows the entire process. But verse 10 of Job chapter 23 says, He knows the way that I take. He knows the path I'm going to walk. And when he has tried me, tried me, when he has tested me, when he has worked through my life, when he has pushed me through the trials, there's a time element here. He says, tried, past tense, looking back at life. This is looking at these seasons where these things come and they go. And there's a moment in life where there's a relief from the pressure. And there's those moments that seem unending where the pressure is mounting. He says, these obstacles are there that try us and refine us. It's similar to what James says in chapter 1 of James chapter 1 verse 2. He says, consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The refining of your faith, the stretching of your faith, the crushing of your soul, the putting you in situations to show that God must give grace and our dependency upon Him is more apparent than other times. Knowing the test of your faith produces endurance and that endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. 
My faith is in place. My trust is in place. My confidence is in place. And look at the result of what Job says in 23 verse 10. He says, he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I'll come forth as gold. I'll come forth as gold. That's what refining fires do. They remove impurity. They expose weakness. They leave behind what can't be consumed and can't be destroyed. They leave something that's been proven, that's been tested. That's been purified. What's impure in me is going to be burned out. Where I lack faith, God will reveal it and supply it. Where I lack hope, God will expose it and supply it and provide it. And where I lack trust, God will uncover it and then install it. That's what God does. The gold that's revealed is the hidden treasure of a godly heart. The hidden treasure of a clear conscience. The hidden treasure of a trust in our Savior that is in place. It's a transformed life that we see. And that's the treasure that His Holy Spirit is working in us to produce. That's what Job says the plan is. His perception is that I can't see Him. I can't know what He's doing. I can't understand the plan. But I have an understanding of what He's doing in the biggest picture. And that's that He's refining me. He's burning out what is impure in me. He's exposing areas of sin, areas of pride, areas of doubt that I did not know existed. And the trial, though not caused by Job, is being used in that way. Well, there's a path that then is described a little further in verse 11 and 12. He says, my foot has held fast to his path. I've kept his way and not turned aside. There's only one way for this kind of refining refining fire to work. And that's if Job stays on the path. If Job stays on the path, how easy would it have been for him to sink into bitterness and become angry against God? How easy would it have been for him to get bitter against God and become indifferent to what God's purposes are? We get a little glimpse of that kind of attitude in the life of David in Psalm 73. Listen to this. Psalm 73, David says, For when I was envious of the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Verse 12 of Psalm 73, David says, Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease, and they have increased in wealth. You ever wonder that? It's like, why do all the guys who hate God have all the money? Why do all the people who hate righteousness don't try to run from sin in any way? Why do they sleep well at night, have bills paid, and seem to have a plan that just works? And here we are trying to honor God. And the more you do that, the more you get hated by the world, the less things work out and the more they all break. And David says, surely in vain, I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. I mean, that's David saying that. Like, did I waste my time here? He says, when I pondered to understand all this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came to the sanctuary of God. And then I perceived their end. What David says is in the moment, it looks like they have a wonderful life. It looks like those who are enemies of God have everything put together. In the moment, they have a temporal peace about them or a sense of happiness about them. But when you look past the facade of today, you perceive their end and it's devastating. David says in Psalm 73, verse 19, they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden tears. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you on earth, I desire nothing. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Can you say that with David? That the nearness of God is our good? We hold on to that. We cling to that. The God who is near. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and save those, saves those who are crushed in spirit. Don't envy the perceived peace of the wicked. They may succeed for now, but this earth is the closest thing to heaven that they will ever know. This earth is the closest thing to heaven that they will ever know. And for Job in that moment, this is the closest thing to hell that he will ever know. For a Christian, the worst day of our life is the closest thing to hell that we will ever experience. A child of God stays on the path of God. You say, what is that path? Where do you find the path that he mentions here in verse 11? My foot is held fast to his path. Mark down a couple of verses that help give light to what that path is. David says in Psalm 17, verse 4, By the word of your lips I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your path. My feet have not slipped. By the word of your lips... His words define and direct our path. Psalm 119, 9 and, and following. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I've sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Don't let me move off that path. Simply by knowing and doing the word of God. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my what? My path. It's so simple. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your what? Heart, right? And do not lean on your own understanding. That means you've got nothing to add. That's what it means. Trust in the Lord with all of our heart and don't lean on yourself. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That's not a give a nod to God and do what you want. That's in every single way, do what honors him and he will make your path straight. He will direct your path. Proverbs 4, 26 and 27. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. That's simple. That's clear. It's marked by danger. It's marked by loneliness. It's marked by hardship, by sacrifice, by dependency, by faith. It's marked by trouble. But it's a path that leads to greater and greater peace with our God. So back to Job 23, he says, I've not turned aside. Verse 12 says, I've not departed from the command of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. That is such a strong statement. He says, I've treasured, I've held secure, I've incarcerated, I've kept it in a safe place, intentionally anchored my life to it. I've buried it in me. Psalm 119, verse 11, your word I've treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. I've kept it there. I've learned it. I've meditated on it. I've memorized it. I've repeated it back. It's not just your words that I know about. It's your words that are in my thoughts. And when I think, I'm thinking your words. 
I've treasured your word. But he says, more than my necessary food. Again, that's such a vivid statement. He's not talking about the peripheral food. Well, I mean, we almost everyone has some element of leftovers in your fridge. Some element of uneaten food that's available to you. I met one guy who has a snack drawer in his car just because he, you might not be able to make it from meal to meal. I mean, never know when you need your sneaky snacks. You know, all the little things. That, some of you probably have a bag of snacks with you in this room right now and you're funneling them to somebody. You laugh because you're doing it. But Job says, I've treasured your word more than the bite that I would need in order to stay alive. When he says necessary food, he's not talking about extra or superfluous. He's talking about the bite that I need in order to stay alive. If given the choice, I want your word. I'd rather have your word and die than to eat food and live without your word. I mean, even just really at a basic level, when was the last time you skipped a meal to read your Bible? You can think quickly when the last time was you skipped a meal to make a sale. You skipped a meal to get chores done. You skipped a meal to help somebody else. And maybe that's wonderful and good. But when was the last time out of hunger for God's word, Matthew 5, hungering after righteousness, that there a craving of your heart and your soul was to devour the pure milk and meat of God's word to the point where this is what you crave to where you will give up everything, including your last gasp of air, to get it. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I've been called by your name. John seventeen seventeen. Jesus says, your word is truth. My fear is that we're so casual with God's word and so troubled by trials and we never think that in the midst of the trial I have to have God's word preset in my mind don't go running to God's word in the middle of a trial when you don't run to God's word anyway it's not like a fire extinguisher you leave on the wall just in case you need it it's part of your breathing apparatus you inhale God's word and you exhale worship that's the Christian circulatory breathing system You inhale God's word and you exhale worship. And it must be in place long before the trial begins. Because when that fire starts, there's no time to run elsewhere. Something so important here. Job did not turn to the word of God or become godly in the midst of the trial. He already was. And his faith is unchanging in our unchanging God and his powerful word. But is that where our confidence lies? You know how you can see this? Don't do it now, but Job chapter 1 verse 5 tells us about Job's life. It says, when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, his family, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. That statement about Job's life says he was godly all the way through. His pattern of walking with God in righteousness was there long before the trial began. But we saw the perception. We see the plan of God. You see the pathway that Job goes down. And then last, the purpose in verse 13 and 14. The purpose of all this. He says, but he is unique and who can turn him? And what his soul desires that he does. Job's saying, God does not change. No one, not even Satan, building a case against you, can turn God's love away from you or his protection to be removed from you. 
Christ would say in John chapter 10, verse 28, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If Satan today were to go to God and try to ask for another way to attack, another person to sift, there's no way that you can be removed from the love of God. He says, verse 14, For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. Isaiah 55, verse 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. He says he performs what's appointed for me. He does what's appointed for me. And no one is going to understand his decrees or change those things. God's going to accomplish his plan. God will not be distracted. He will not be deterred. He'll not be defeated. His heart, Job's heart, is one of simple trust. In the 1950s, a guy named Ron Hamilton was born. Some of you may know of Ron Hamilton. Grew up in a home that had a lot of music in it, a lot of love for Christ. And early on, he fell in love with writing songs and began to do that. And he would, was then called into ministry and would travel and preach a little bit and sing in different churches. But in the late 70s, he developed cancer in one of his eyes. Doctors at that point in time had no other option but to remove the eye. Well, he did what he thought was best, and he would put a patch over his eye and still continue on preaching and singing. Well, kids in different churches would look at him and say, hey, you look like patch, you know, you're wearing a patch, you look like a pirate. And soon the phrase patch the pirate was coined. Well, he didn't like that necessarily at the start, but then he thought, wait a minute, maybe patch the pirate is a character that could exist in order to communicate the gospel to kids. And he launched onto a career, and still does today, I just checked yesterday, still today publishing music for children by, and stories for kids under the name of Patch the Pirate. And reflecting on God's goodness and thinking through how he could use the trials of life to exalt God, he wrote a little song called Rejoice in the Lord. It says this, God never moves without purpose or plan when trying his servant or molding a man. Give thanks to the Lord, though your testing seems long. In darkness, he giveth a song. I could not see through the shadows ahead, so I looked at the cross of my Savior instead. I bowed to the will of the Master that day. Then peace came and tears fled away. Now I can see testing comes from above. God strengthens his children and purges in love. My Father knows best, and I trust in his care. Through purging, more fruit I will bear. Oh, rejoice in the Lord, he makes no mistakes, for he knoweth the end of each path that I take. For when I am tried and purified, I will come forth as gold. It's a great little statement from a man who understood the heart of Job in Job chapter 23. And looking at what we see in Job 23, we see a pathway for handling the trials of life and enduring those with trust in God that says, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your love for us that never lets us go. Thank you for your enduring love that even when we sin and we must suffer the consequences of that sin, we know that we are forgiven by you. For those here today, Lord, who may not know you as Lord and Savior, who may not be saved, who may be in a world of despair and fear, I pray today they would look to you and ask forgiveness, that they'd repent of their sin, turning from sin, and trust you. For those of us who do know you as our Father, I ask for your comfort to be upon those who are going through different trials. 
that we would look to you. And though we may say we don't know all that you're doing, we know that you are God, you are in charge, and we can rest in you. We pray that you would strengthen our faith until faith becomes sight and we see you face to face. In your name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.